freedom. Brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love, become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you provide us with sunshine. And your scripture says that the sun of righteousness can rise in our hearts. We pray that that'll be our experience today. We pray for enlightenment from your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, happy Father's Day to all of the fathers out there, the stepdads, the father figures, the father mentors. We thank you for uh, what you do for your families, what you do for society, and your roles cannot be diminished. They should be lifted up, and so we thank you. So, hey, happy Father's Day. Um, but also, this weekend is also Juneteenth. We've got a couple holidays. Uh, and so, happy Juneteenth tomorrow when it comes around. But let me tell you a story. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I was in high school, it was my junior year of high school, and I was coming in late, typical. <laughs> and I was, as I was walking into the uh, front of the schoolyard, a couple of upperclassmen came to me. They were on their way out. They looked like they were up to something, and they said, hey, Michelle, we're going to go grab some donuts. You want to come? And I said, sure. <laughs> I figured I could walk in a little later, all right? No, don't cut class, okay? That's not what I'm saying. This is simply what happened, all right? So I agreed, and we went, went to get donuts. We laughed, we talked, we ate. And then we made our way back to school. And as we were coming into the parking lot, uh, my friend who was driving um, noticed that her parking spot was gone. Someone came in, pulled in, took her parking spot. And immediately she said, those D-word N-words. I was in the back seat. And I kind of just froze. Those D-word, N-word. For a time, we were united in rebellion, united in our feelings about school being subpar, united in merriment and laughter, united in living our lives, constantly embracing a spur-of-the-moment, unplanned, impromptu existence. We talked, we laughed, and then this. After the moment had ended, an awkward silence. Is this the part where I get out of the car? Is this what she thought about me? A black person sitting in the back seat? After the party was over, no one was sure what came next. Juneteenth, June 19, 1865, 
Major General Gordon Granger of the Union Army arrived in Galveston, Texas with news that the Civil War had ended and all those who were held captive, all those who were enslaved, were now free. However, that was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, 1863, which was signed by Abraham Lincoln, which freed all enslaved people. His main motive was not to really set enslaved people free, he signed it to prevent the breaking up of the Union, and he used the freeing of enslaved people as a threat to the rebellious Confederacy. And because they didn't back down, he ended up following through by signing the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. Unfortunately, Troops from the Union Army didn't break through, or couldn't break through, the Texas Confederate troops to tell those who were enslaved that they were now free. And so, two long years later, the chains of bondage were finally broken. Imagine we just went through about a two-year global quarantine. Two years, that's a long time. That is a long time. But after they received the news, celebrations ensued. What were those celebrations like? In the children's book, All Different Now, by Angela Johnson, she describes a picture of what the morning of freedom looked like. It started out as a typical day, waking up and laboring in cotton fields in the hot Texan sun until word spread through town and into the fields after the announcement of freedom from General Gordon Granger. The announcement was that things would be different. <clears throat> people sang, people cried, people bowed their heads to pray. They laughed, they told stories, all as free people. It was a celebration and it very well took place most likely in a church because plantation owners didn't want such celebrations on their property, which I'm sure you could understand why. And as they walked past those fields of cotton that they worked in for so long and they knew so well, they were thankful that what used to be their present reality was now an experience of the past. But my question is, what happens after the party is over? After the celebrations and the merriment over the initial victory of blatant oppression are over, what happens next? Well, an awkward silence sets in. No help from the government was given to the newly freed people. No money, no land to work, no education plan, no assistance to begin a new reality as a free person. Of course not, because the heart of freeing enslaved people had little to do with the uplifting of a people, more so than negotiations. And so now we remain with this 
awkward silence and the aftermath of the victory celebrations. The chain of bondage had been removed, but there were more than just literal chains of oppression that needed to be dismantled. And the chains that remain must be broken in order to answer this question of what happens when the party is over? What is next? Is it an awkward silence? Or is it a harmonious union of community? These remaining chains have followed America from generation to generation and have played the main part in creating that awkward silence after I returned back from grabbing donuts and playing hooky with people who I thought were friends. So we'll highlight two oppressive chains that have remained after slavery and some methods to dismantle them these chains are mental and societal. Our scripture of, of emphasis this morning came from the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. Now, I'll give you some context on the book of Galatians. It is all about the concept of freedom. It's Paul's uh, explanation of why the Jews no longer needed to be bound by the ceremonial laws and customs because they were fulfilled in Christ. He came and they were all a symbol or system pointing to him. He describes the liberty that faith in Jesus brings and the necessity of dismantling the long-standing superiority complex of the Jews against the Gentiles. He refutes the belief of the Jewish Christians that the Gentile converts needed to abide by the ceremonial laws like circumcision. So as Paul begins concluding his argument, he, or the book of Galatians, he tells the Galatians what the response should be for anyone who is freed from the bonds of ceremony, tradition, and of course, sin through Jesus Christ. The scripture of emphasis, and go there, says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another or servants. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like that. So question, how does one use their freedom in Jesus to break mental chains in the mind of an oppressed people? Jamar Tisby is the author of this book, How to Fight Racism, and the subtitle is Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And he proposes his own theory, it's called the ARC method, right? And what that stands for is A, awareness, R, relationship, and C, commitment. A-R-C method, awareness, relationship, commitment. And awareness starts by educating ourselves about the plight of those previously oppressed 
and their experience. You can't do anything if you don't know anything, right? And then developing relationships with people who share a different experience, right? This develops empathy and compassion, a type of understanding. Now, these don't have to happen in order. They can just happen. And then C. C is commitment. A commitment to a hardened stance to refuse and fight against oppressive language, laws, and behavior. A commitment to equalize and uplift human beings who were wrong, wronged for centuries and continue to be wronged in the present. But let's flip to another scripture, an idea. In the book of Exodus, book of Exodus chapter 15, all right? Exodus is a story when the Israelites uh, came out of Egypt. They were enslaved for about 430 years. And the Exodus, which, which means a coming out, is a story of how God pulled them out of Egypt to, uh, uh, to a new life and headed towards Canaan, which was the promised land. And in Exodus 15, it is the celebration, it's the aftermath of them being rescued. And it's a celebration of the children of Israel after they had crossed the Red Sea, God had parted it and they walked through on dry land. And God had fought for them. And Miriam, the sister of Moses, she was leading the celebration, leading the charge, dancing and singing with the women. There was merriment. There was joy, and once the party was over, we begin to see the mental chain of oppression on this particular people group. It starts to manifest itself, starts to come out, starts to be more visible. Look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 through 3. It said, the whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim. And Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They said, hey, Moses, we're hungry. Take us back to Egypt. The children of Israel were physically free, but mentally still in bondage. At that point, they identified themselves more as the slaves of Egypt rather than God's freed people. They would rather be cared for by oppressors than led by God. And their view of themselves, to think that way, was very, very low. Now, this isn't an exact illustration of American slavery, but there are similarities. And one of them is, there are many mental chains that still need to be broken and should continue to be broken around the self-identity of African Americans. Skin color, 
from skin color to hair, texture, to the appropriateness of certain physical features. I could tell you stories and stories of my personal experience, to perceived intelligence. As a result of years of oppression, and an enslaved group of people begins to see themselves through the perspective of the oppressor. Now, not all oppressed people fall for this, and many are able to rise above that and see their true God-given identity, them being a masterpiece of the creator God himself. But as we come down through the generations and discover the remains of these ideological chains, how does one today use their freedom in Christ to uplift and oppressed people in their time and context. Here's one thought. How do we do that? You speak life into people. You speak life. You remind them that they were made in the image of God and an equal member of the human family. I think the idea is, is if one negative word or, or phrase is spoken to someone, you need at least seven to recover from that. What about years and years and centuries of being told something negative? Speak life. In the book of Hosea, uh, uh, yes, in the book of Hosea, we see God's strategy of how to actually win back his people. All right, I'll actually look at that briefly. Now, some context on the book of Hosea. Interesting book. God calls this man, Hosea, and he tells him to marry a woman who is unfaithful. And he does this so that Hosea can see a real-life practical illustration of God's relationship with his people Israel. And how time and time again, Israel chooses someone else over him. The one that they are committed to, supposedly. And so in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, it says this. This is God's strategy of how he wins people back. Therefore, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. From there, I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There, she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He says, I will speak tenderly, I will give hope, I will draw her. But you know the interesting thing is Jesus had a great following while he was here, a great following of quote-unquote sinners, people were called because he spoke in a way that produced life in the soul, that gave hope, that uplifted people. And so after the party is over, after the celebrations for Juneteenth, Juneteenth conclude tomorrow evening, what should you do? Speak life to one another. Speak life. But there's another question. How does one use their freedom in Jesus Christ to break societal chains 
in the experience of an oppressed people. There's mental chains, and then there's chains within society. So my aunt, my family's Nigerian, my very Nigerian aunt, she wanted to purchase um, a house in a subdivision. And it was a, pri uh, a majority Caucasian subdivision. And she called, uh, called up the realtor, and she asked for prices and information on the property. And she got some kind of bogus numbers. She had a feeling something was a little bit fishy. So she had someone else with a very ethnic name call the same realtor, and they also got some bogus numbers. So she got a friend from work, a Caucasian friend, and she had her Caucasian friend call the same realtor and ask for numbers and information on the property. And lo and behold, the numbers seemed a bit more reasonable and didn't match the quotes that she was given. Interesting. But you know what? I appreciate that friend. I appreciate that her friend used her privilege to equal out the playing field. And so her friend sets up an appointment to take a house tour, and they both show up, my Nigerian auntie <laughs> and her friend, and the realtor is looking baffled. Who am I selling the house to? When you understand the imbalance in the systems that run our society today, we must work to equalize the playing field. Let me tell you another, uh, uh, let's look at another biblical highlight. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, and I like this because Paul does something great here. I'll read it to you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, what does this mean? Look, Paul calls out Peter for being hypocritical in being down with the Gentiles when the Jewish Christians weren't there. But when the Jews came around, he switched it up and switched sides and acted as if he had nothing to do with the Gentiles. So the problem was, even though Peter didn't believe that the Gentiles needed to keep up with some of these rites and rituals, these cleansing rituals uh, uh, that, the, that the Jews believed they needed to, to keep up with, some of the ceremonial practices, he didn't believe that. But when the Jewish Christians showed up, he acted like the Gentiles were unclean, impure, as if the gospel hadn't spread to them. He was behaving as a hypocrite, fake, two-faced. So Paul calls him out. Paul steps in the gap. I know some of us see 
the people we're around, and sometimes we could be the hypocrite or they could be the hypocrite. But we need us to step in the gap. Paul calls Peter on his crap, and after the party is over, after the good times are gone, what we need to do is step in the gap for our brothers and sisters in society. Rihanna, she said it perfectly at the 2020 uh, NAACP Image Awards. It's not there again. I'll paraphrase the quote. She says, you guys have friends of different ethnicities, different, different uh, uh, genders, and they come from all over the place, and they like you, you like them. And she said, well, if you want to stand with your people, those that you know, those that you have a relationship with, if you want to stand with them, when they march for the Michael Browns and the Tatiana Jeffersons, she said, pull up. Pull up. March with us. Stand with us. Fight with us. Equalize the playing field with us. Pull up. I like that. I gotta start pulling up. I don't know what happened to the rest of my notes here. Anyway, after the party is over, that's the title of this message, after the celebrations are over, after Juneteenth is over, after Black History Month concludes, we must stand in the gap for our brothers and sisters. We must speak life and love to our brothers and sisters. We must use our freedom, whatever freedom we have, whatever privilege we have, to love and serve one another. Juneteenth will come and go, but your words and your actions will remain. And you don't know where to start? That's okay. You can start with the ARC method. Awareness, relationship, and commitment. And after the party is over, continue working towards the uniting of society and the uplifting of your brothers and sisters in Christ and in the world. And so if you want to do something practical, actually, this weekend, uh, Elite Feats is doing a Juneteenth run here at Central Park. You go to elitefeats.com and you can sign up for the Juneteenth 5K run walk. You can do that. But ultimately, after the party is over, there's two things that we need to remember to do. Speak life and stand in the gap for one another. Is that your prayer? Is that your desire? Then I pray that God will make it your experience.